Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Um, my guest today is Chris Albrecht, uh, the man, the myth, the legend. And normally, I like to do a, a cold open that sort of relates to the guest um, impromptu while the guest is here. But I decided that there's a story that I told within a Matt Williams podcast to open that is truly uh, so extraordinary about Dave Chappelle and the relationship to him and myself and Chris Albrecht that I thought, you know, it might be better if I sort of repurposed, repackaged, edit a little bit and play you a segment of that story that relates to my guest today, Chris Albrecht. So, for the first time ever, I guess you could call this a best of of a cold open of industry standard. So, I... uh, represented uh, a lot of uh, comedians uh, I still do who uh, branch off into television and film and you know in the 90s I had a chance to represent some of the most uh, amazing people that were working in the clubs who I thought could branch out into film and television 
and uh, you know, one of them was, as you probably know, was Dave Chappelle, and the other one was Jim Brewer, who uh, relate to this story. And at the time, uh, in the mid '90s, I was kind of like a, the kind of person who didn't wait for things to happen. I wanted things to happen. I tried to make things happen, and I um, remember well that I was tired of the development process with Dave Chappelle and so was he we had done like about three or four pilots and they didn't go anywhere and at Disney and I met with Dave and I said I'd like to try something different I'd like to uh, FedEx a letter to Chris Albrecht at HBO who also started in the comedy field he was a doorman at the at the improv on 44th and 9th when he started and he moved up to be president of HBO and I said, I want to reach out to him, let him know that we love a deal that involved uh, a half hour uh, scripted project, uh, hour specials, comic relief, maybe a talk show, just all encompassing. And I knew that if I sent Chris a FedEx, he would open it because FedExes are like emails these days. You know, no matter who you get it from, you can get it from a homeless person. You're going to open the email and say, oh, wow, God, he lives he lives on the street, but I'm opening it <laughs> and I'm reading this. So <laughs> I send a FedEx this beautiful typed letter because there aren't any computers that I'm using back then. I'm typing the letter with those typewriters that have the ball thing and the whiteout, and I'm going back and forth trying to make it right. And I send him this beautiful letter, and he calls me and he says, "Barry, thank you. Uh, the art of letter writing is 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 a dying art, and uh, it's a really passionate letter. And I would love to meet you and Dave. And I'm gonna uh, have my uh, business affairs person fly you both out first class, put you up at the uh, wherever Four Seasons." And I'm like, first class. This is unbelievable. You know, I, I I was flying with the chickens my whole life. You know, and 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 so. We fly out here, and he it's a wonderful meeting, and he offers us the moon. Everything that I wanted on that piece of paper, he offered. And I did all this stuff. I was sort of a, a rogue kind of manager at the time, even though he had an agent at the time, uh, Martin Lisak and uh, a few other uh, great people. I sometimes did things without really you know, telling them as much as I should, or I just said, Hey, I want to send this. I didn't really go into detail because if it didn't work out, then I didn't want to look like it was a, a bad thing to do. Anyway, this paid off Chris Albrecht. I want to do it. So I called, uh, Dave's agents. They were excited. Um, they started getting into, uh, discussions with business affairs at HBO. Then, you know, with Jim Brewer, things were heating up and getting kind of hot because there was a, a, a an executive at NBC uh, who was a, a, a really wonderful person. Her name was Amy Wolpert, and she was very supportive of me and Jim Brewer, and I had showcased him, and she brought him in, and we met with Warren Littlefield in the group. And if you ever met with Warren Littlefield, who was the president of NBC, you would meet in this office and there'd be this long L-shaped couch and you'd have pitches there or do whatever. And they were like, they never fucking laughed at all. It's like they just sat and watched for his reaction. But Jim Brewer, when he took a meeting, he never took 
uh, you could never get away with not laughing at Jim Brewer. And he just stood up and got right in the war in Littlefield. So he said, what's the matter with you? What, did you have some fucking bad food this morning? Lighten up. These people need to laugh. And he starts punching pillows and wrestling himself to the ground and doing all these crazy things. And suddenly Warren started laughing. And and before I knew it, again, I called Jim's agents and said, um, listen, I don't know how to tell you this, but I just got a call from Business Affairs and they're offering over $200,000 for Jim Brewer. And it ended up being $250,000 that they offered him. And it was on the table. Dave's deal was very close to that as well at HBO. And I am on top of the world because I'm a manager in New York. You know, I'm this, you know, I, I, I got nothing going on. I'm representing kids who haven't done anything in their life. Maybe I have a few people on Saturday at live uh, before this at, at the time, uh, but nothing major. You know, it's, I was, I was a, I was a booking agent for clubs. I was booking people all over the country. And I was trying to make my way. And this was the f one of the first times where I really had validation, like, holy shit, things are coming around. I, 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 could, I might be able to make it in this business. And I am feeling great. I'm like, I remember going back to my office after hearing about both offers and how we're working on trying to close things up. And I remember leaning back in my chair and putting my feet up and all of a sudden the phone rings it's late at night you know it's like nine i'm the only one there Nine thirty. i pick up the phone i'm like hey it's barry katz hey barry how you doing uh this is dean valentine and uh gene blythe calling now dean valentine was the president of of disney television or touchstone television at the time and Gene Blythe was uh, one of the greatest casting directors uh, and directors of development, or however you call what he did. Uh, he was amazing. He, he To this day, he still consults with them. The, the guy is incredible. Eye for talent. And they said, Barry, we, uh, we want to talk to you about something really, really special. I'm like, oh, great. I'm like, this is unbelievable. This is the best week of my life. And they say, Barry... Uh, we want to do a home improvement spinoff. Uh, it's going to be the most expensive uh, show in television history. We're putting everything into it. We even have a guaranteed time slot after home improvement, which no one has ever given in the history of television. I'm leaning back a little bit further. I feel like my head's touching the ground from the back of the chair. I'm just like so excited like this is the best I'm thinking god they want me to be involved in this I haven't even done anything this is great what do they want from me so I said well what do, what do I need to do they said oh you don't have to do anything Barry. all you gotta do is we're gonna send you a first class tickets for you I'm like yeah first class again I'm like and who else Dave Chappelle and Jim Brewer I'm like, come again? They said, Dave Chappelle and Jim Brewer. We want those two to be our home improvement spinoff. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god. Uh, listen, um, guys, that's uh, that's that's really wonderful. But uh, I I uh, I have a um, situation going at HBO with Dave, and 
one in NBC uh, for Jim Brewer. No, no, you don't. You don't have that. You can't. Barry, do not sign those deals. Do not sign those deals. You have to come out and meet us. Please. I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I feel like I've gone forward sort of, I mean, I haven't closed the deals with these people. Nothing's signed yet, but I feel like if I take that meeting, it just would lack all integrity. And I don't, I don't really feel that great about Barry. All you're taking is a meeting. Don't worry about it. You got a free trip to LA. They'll have fun. It'll be wonderful. Just come. And so I called Dave and I called Jim and I said what was going on. And I, I told them I really, you know, it was a wonderful thing, but I really didn't feel comfortable about it. It was something that I was really nervous about. And I got their agents on the line. And of course their agents said, what the fuck are you talking about? Get on the fucking plane and get out there and take that meeting. That, that, this is how it's all done. Get out there. And said, okay, so we go out and take the meeting with Dean Valentine and his, his team. And I, I believe David Kissinger was there, who's uh, a huge macha in the business. And uh, it might have been Pete Aronson, too. Uh, uh, and it was an amazing meeting. And they walked us down to the set. Matt Williams was doing a home improvement and showed us the whole thing. They took us down to Matt's office. And we get out of there and we meet with the agents and they're like, listen, we have to do this home improvement spinoff. Because the agents are thinking, hey, we got the package. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Both clients will be the biggest show ever. We got the guaranteed time slot. We'll go. We'll do that. And so I had to call Chris Albrecht and had to call NBC. And that was uh, devastating. Um, I don't think Chris Albrecht talk to me for like five years and uh, but as usual talent rules and hopefully people get over things that uh and they have to realize that sometimes your artists they're the presidents of their careers and you're basically the cabinet and that's the way it is hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So we're back live. Uh, quite an amazing story, and I thought I would sort of put an exclamation point on it. 
to give you a little prequel to how we got to where we were with Chris Albrecht and me sending the Federal Express letter to him. You see, Dave and I had uh, basically done about six or seven pilots for television with Disney in about eight years. And I'll never forget after we finished the seventh pilot and we went up to Dean Valentine's office, the president of Disney and all the executives up there, and we had all hope and all excitement, and we met with them for an important meeting about the pilot. And they sat us down and they said, listen, guys, you did a great job. We're really happy with it but we're not going to move forward with the pilot. And Dave and I were dejected and speechless, and we walked out of that Team Disney building on the lot in silence with our shoulders slumped, our heads down. We didn't say a word to each other the whole walk out. It seemed like eternity. We get outside the doors of the Team Disney building on the lot. And for those of you out there in my audience that don't know the building, it's a very special building. It has like kind of an A-frame quality to it in cement up at the top. There are seven dwarfs holding up the roof. It looks like they're holding up the roof. They're positioned in that way. And we get out and... Dave looks at me and he doesn't say anything and I look at him and I heartbroken I can't say anything either. Takes out a pack of I think Marlboro Reds and he slams the pack against his hand. Pulls out a cigarette, puts it in his mouth. Pulls out a lighter, lights it. Takes a big puff. exhales, looks up at the dwarfs and the Team Disney building, looks at me as if to say something to me, but he doesn't say anything. He takes another puff out of his cigarette, exhales, looks up again at the building, looks at me, and he says, Barry Man. And I said, yeah, Dave. And he looked at me, he took another puff out of his cigarette and exhaled, and he said, Fucked by the mouse again. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. I am very excited. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, 
Barry Katz, uh, this is uh, a really amazing day for me because very rarely do I get to sit across somebody who has roots in the stand-up comedy business but then goes on to diversify to do so many different things and uh, inspire so many people. My guest today, Chris Albrecht, let me just tell you a little bit about this guy uh, that uh, to me is just an amazing career. Um, he started as a guy who was basically uh, in this business in some way working some form of the door at the improvisation, the original one at 44th and 9th in New York City. Went on to do a number of different things, came out to L.A., became an agent at ICM, International Creative Management, the agency, one of the top in the world, and was representing everybody from Jim Carrey to Eddie Murphy and on teams working with Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg. And then uh, went on to become uh, uh, the president of HBO. Not only did he work in the production side of HBO, independent productions, where he was responsible for helping launch shows like Martin and Everybody Loves Raymond, but he also became the uh, CEO of HBO, where he basically changed the face of television with shows like The Sopranos, Sex and the City, Six Feet Under, Entourage, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Band of Brothers, and presently, he is the uh, chairman and CEO of Stars, and uh, I am so honored to have you here. Please welcome everybody, my guest, Chris Albrecht. <laughs> I have so much to cover with you, but I want to start like in the beginning because I think there's a lot of people listening and out there in the audience who always wonders, you know, what happened? Like, how does a guy go from one place to the next? So take me to your lowest moment, starting out after whatever your education and where you were trying to figure out what you're doing and how the first thing came about that was an entrance into the business. And what was your inspiration to getting into that entrance in the business, which in your form was, was comedy? Yeah, so, um, you know, in, co in college I kicked around trying to be an actor like a lot of people did because I didn't know what else to do. Um, and I was doing summer stock in a professional summer stock company. And I met a guy who was, in his spare time, he was also an actor in that company, in his spare time he did a comedy magic act. And his name was Bob Zmuda. And we can well, we can talk about him later. He certainly has stayed a friend. Well, of course, and a, Bob Zmuda, the guy years. you sort of co-founded <laughs> Comic Relief with. yes. But before that, he said to me, you know, if you want to be an actor, uh, you know, you, you know, you got to move to Manhattan. I'm going to move to Manhattan. He had just graduated from Carnegie, Mellon, from Carnegie Mellon University. We'll be roommates. I said, okay. And he said, you know, guys are getting famous out of being stand-up comics now. Freddie Prince got, uh, 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 I forget the name of Freddie's show. Oh, my God. Um, anyway, um, something I'm the man of. I just, I'm, yeah, now I'm going uh, blank there myself. Yeah, oh my God, we're gonna have to fix terrible. this. We're gonna have to fix that in post <laughs> with Jack Albertson. And, and that's right, Chico and, and the Man. Chico and the Man, and then J.J. Walker got Good Times, and Gabe Kaplan had Cotter, um, and he said so. We should go put an act together, and go to the Improv because that's a club where a lot of these comics start and everybody gets seen. And I was like, I didn't have anything better to do. So All we, right, so where are you guys living at the time? So we moved into Manhattan on 88th between Broadway and Amsterdam, not a place you would want to walk. <laughs> Tell me about the apartment. Uh, it was a two-bedroom apartment that we bought. The f we, 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 bought. We, we took the furniture that was already in it. <laughs> um, 
And it was it was, had a lot of windows, but two feet away from every window was the wall to another building. <laughs> so whether it was two o'clock in the afternoon or two o'clock at night was sort of immaterial. Um, and we, you know, we painted it ourselves. It was back in the days when you needed a real police lock on the on the doors. Those door, those doors that had yeah. the the pole coming from the back. That's right. And we worked as techies behind the scenes at the theater of the Riverside Church, which was up on 125th Street and. Uh, Riverside Drive. In so that's what we did for money during the day. And at night, he, you know, Bob took me to the improv. Remember the first time I walked into the improv, he was telling me about the Untouchables and Andy Kaufman and a bunch of other comics that played there, Robert Klein and everybody else. So uh, we sat in the back of the room, we watched, then we went home and we worked on an act together in our living room. And then we st stood around on, on audition night and went on stage. We sort of were a prop What, what year was this? 1973. 1973, and you were doing props. Doing props. Okay. <laughs> so you were, were like were, yeah. you were like the original carrot top. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't I don't know about that, but props were as useful then as they are now. You know, we had a black case. <laughs> we had an act that we, we had an act in 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 one sketch. We needed a jar of Vaseline, and in a completely different sketch, we needed a banana. But we needed a new jar of Vaseline and a new banana every night. So we would walk downtown because we didn't have enough money to take. Uh, a, a a cab and the subways were kind of scary at, at that time of night, especially since we we're, in, we're in, ending up in, in uh, Times Square. So we would walk past, I don't know what they were, they were 7-Elevens, no, they weren't 7-Elevens, they were Smilers, yeah. which was the chain of grocery stores in New York. And I would say to Muda, okay, it's your turn to go in and get the Vaseline and the banana tonight because <laughs> the one thing that you didn't really want to go in was to go into a Smilers and ask for a jar of Vaseline and a banana. Um <laughs> But uh, may I ask what the bit was? Well, the jar of Vaseline. You I don't seem really, like such a cerebral intelli really intellectual guy to me. I don't remember what the jar of Vaseline was for. The banana was for <laughs> a a uh, commercial parody sketch that we used to do. There was a commercial on 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 at the time where this fat guy would jump into a pool and he'd come out of the water and he'd go, hard to leave I'm bald, because his water was, uh, his, his, his hair was all plastered to his face. And it turned out it was like for one of those wig places, uh -huh. right? So I would sit on Zamuda's lap and he would put his arms through me and I would just be like a rag doll. <laughs> and then he would, and I would sit up and, I, and he would move every, you know, my head and my body and I would go, hard to believe I'm dead? I know it is. And then in the end, I can, I can, you can swim with it, you can do it, and you can even eat with it. And I'd open my mouth and he'd smash a banana in my forehead. Because it, it was a total miss. It was funnier in person than it is on a podcast. <laughs> And um, so anyway, so we got accepted, lo and behold, as comedians. I got to know Bud Friedman, who was the comedy. So you were you you, you were killing on stage. Yeah. Well, well, actually, if you got accepted as as a comedian at the Improv or Catch at that time, what what you, you really catch won, a rising star for those yeah, of you listening was the yeah, yes catch a rising star was the right to go to the club and stand around and wait to see if you were ever going to get on. So. The clubs, you know, New York, you could the, the bars could stay open until four o'clock in the morning. So the idea was for the clubs to stay open as long as possible. But it wasn't as if they had cracked, packed crowds every night. So we would go in and stand in the bar and see if we were going to get a spot, which, you know, was kind of crazy because you're standing around to see if you can go work for free. And tell me some of the comedians who were going on in 1973 that people might know now. Well, certainly Robert Klein, certainly Andy Kaufman, uh, uh, Elaine Boozler, Richard Lewis, um, uh, a guy named Ed Bluestone, uh, Alan Zweibel, who went on to be a big writer, Richard Belzer, who, of course, uh, has played uh, de detectives on television for quite some time. Richard Pryor would come in. Uh, um, 
Rodney would come and Rodney Dangerfield would come in all the time to work out. He was doing, you know, Tonight Show shots almost every other week, practically. Um, And so you're there hanging out in the bar waiting to get on. And then when did you realize maybe stand-up comedy isn't for me? Well, you know, the bar at the Improv, though, is, 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 and at Cat, they were pretty great places because it was a time when comedy was really starting to become, I don't want to sound too flowery, but like an art form. You know, when young people were thinking about doing this when they were in college, obviously had a different kind of point of view. It was no longer my wife is fat jokes or, you know, my, my brother-in-law's a bum joke. It was, it, was, it was people talking about politics, although, you know, Carlin had certainly done that and a lot of social stuff, and, 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 and George was very popular then. But he wasn't an improv uh, act. He wasn't, a, he, you know, he wasn't a New York City act, although he certainly came through the clubs occasionally but it was you know people talking about things that a lot of people in the audience could relate to and that got a lot of young people in the clubs and certainly created a situation where comics could work at colleges which also hadn't happened before and the bar was as much of a training ground as the as you know getting on stage was and comedians would get on stage and they'd put their little tape recorder in the back their little Eight track was it? I guess a little eight track tape recorder in the, the thing back. Where you had to press record and play at record, the same time. Exactly, they recorded their act every night because that's I recorded how they, my bar mitzvah on one of those. Because <laughs> that's how they would get better. You know, they would go home and they'd listen to their act, and and they had to be their own writer, their own performer, their own editor, their own director. Um, but it was clear that uh, Bob and I were not destined for uh, the comedy hall of fame. Now, did you guys just because you know comedy is so brutal and comedians are so cruel with each other if they're not doing the thing that they perceive being the right thing or they're not doing what they feel is the hip or cool thing to do. So you're with Pryor, Rodney, you know, Robert Klein, Richard Lewis, and you know, Bob Zamuna is is stuffing a banana in your forehead. Okay. So were you getting shit on by the other comedians <laughs> in the back of the club? You know, uh, by the time we went on, there weren't a whole lot of comedians <laughs> left in the back of the club. The act, on, the act who was waiting to get on after us was Larry David. So that that's that's how that's how uh, that's how long ago this was. And what's fascinating, just to break in here, if you're not aware of it already, uh, all the people of our audience listening and watching, what what happens is it's all about the relationship. So here, it's 1973. He's roommates with Bob Zamuda. You go into the club, Larry David is the closing act. And then more relationships ensue. So that's what happens if you meet these people along the way and you maintain yourself as a good person, you have good relationships with people, those little things always seem to become big things. But keep going with the story here. So, you know, obviously if you're not getting paid to be on stage, you've got to be paid to do, get to do something else. So I was getting paid, as was Bob, for being a waiter, being a bartender, not at the improv, but at other places. And then we also at night would go in and sneak in and help build, once the union crew would leave, uh, we would illegally work helping build what was then New York's first off-Broadway dinner theater, a place called the Little Hippodrome, which was being built by a guy named Dick Skanga, who was a big Broadway general manager. And Bud Friedman, who owned the improv at the time, knew Dick Skanga and asked me and knew that Dick Skanga trusted me. So Bud came and asked me if I would host the children's cabaret for him on Sunday, which the the which was a Sunday afternoon. The act was Andy Kaufman. 
Andy Kaufman and children. Andy Kaufman and children. And, and Andy did the same act at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday that he had done at 12 o'clock the previous night <laughs> for a group of drunk, you know, New Yorkers and 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 uh, people from New Jersey. Did the kids like them. the act better than the drunk people? Uh, they might have gotten it better. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you and Bob hosted, or just no, you? no, just me. I actually yeah, host the meeting. I introduced Andy, but I also kind of worked the door. And then uh, Bud and his Bud and his wife wanted to go on vacation at the time. Silver for three weeks to Europe, and he hadn't been away from the club for more than a week in eleven years. The club had been open for eleven years by then. So he asked me if I would manage the club for him while he was gone. It's a great honor. Uh, was, and it was also $200 a week, which was even better than the honor. So, uh, cash. I, 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 cash. I said <laughs> yes, because by that time, Zmoon and I were living in the back of the dinner theater because <laughs> we had lost our apartment because we didn't have enough money to pay for it. And so, then, you, you and Bob, it's probably like 1974. This Bo- is now 75. 75. Both of you are homeless. Beginning of 75. And yes. you're living in the back of a theater illegally, almost. Yeah. 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 Well, certainly illegally because it wasn't a residential area. <laughs> it wasn't a residential building. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you can say you're homeless if you're actually living somewhere. Well, it wasn't a home. Well, it's true. It was and there, was, was there a shower in the theater? There was a shower in the theater, okay. yes, of All course. Right. We're not barbarians. <laughs> <laughs> um... So should be uh, the title of your next show. Yeah. <laughs> so Bud and his wife went away, and I ran the club for three weeks, and it went and I emceed every night because Bud didn't want to pay uh, the comics to uh, MC. Hence the two hundred. So yeah. he actually paid you nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's true. You know, I never thought of that, Barry. I used to run clubs. Yeah, there you go. And um, so it 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 went. Well, and Bud came back, and I went back to being a bartender at a place called Jimmy Ray's, which was a Broadway actress hanging on Eighth Avenue, um, and you know cleaning up puke from very famous actors <laughs> after they had come from uh, doing their shows and drinking themselves till four o'clock in the morning. It's better working, better than working at Show World cleaning up famous actors. That's so. true. A lot worse stuff yes. <laughs> being deposited there. Um, <laughs> So, so how did Bud come around to say, hey? Well, so Bud came back from his three weeks, and I went to work, and then he came in one night to where I was working, and he said, I want to go to L.A. for a month. Uh, would you come back and run the club for me? And, like, literally, I was picking somebody's head up off <laughs> the bar, and I said, sure. And he said, and I may want to open a club there, and if I do, I'll talk to you about staying. I was like, okay, whatever. So he went away for a month. And while Bud was gone, things were actually kind of going okay because uh, I paid attention. He was a good club owner. I had also been an act at Catch, so I knew Rick Newman, who was a good club owner, Catch Rising Star. Rick Newman uh, owned uh, Catch Rising Star. Yeah. At the time. So I kind of like looked at both of them and went, well, Bud does this well. He probably could do that a little better. Rick does this really well. He doesn't know this same thing that Bud does. I was getting friendly with the comics, so I kind of understood you know, what their psyche was a little bit. I'd been doing a little bit myself. So Bud uh, went away, came back a month later, and said, hey, I want to move out to L.A. I found a place. I want to open a club, but I don't want to leave an employee. I want to leave a partner. And he said, so I want you to buy 25% of the club. And he named a number that was I knew was a very, very good deal because I could see the potential in the club, but I didn't have any money. So I borrowed it from my grandmother, who borrowed it from her credit union. She uh, was a United Airlines, former United Airlines employee. Maybe she'd retired by then. And he let me pay him over two years, and he moved out to L.A., and he left me with the club. I mean, as insane as it sounds, that's what he did. And and, uh, 
uh, and he came out and he opened the club here on Melrose, which is which is still here. Got it. And so you're you're managing there, and then he uh, gets a divorce, and then he basically loses the club in the divorce, and Silver's wife comes back to the improv, and now you're faced with a situation where. You know, you're the guy running things, and then there's a new person in yeah. overseeing you. How long did you last? Well, you know, I had, I didn't have. I mean, I had a partner, but I never really ha- had a, had a boss. And and when Silver came back, Bud's wife, she was my partner in the club every night, and we had different points of view about how to run the club. In the meantime, a year or so before, Bud had wanted to open a club in Vegas, and he asked me. I said to him, "Hey, Bud, you know, if you're going to go to Vegas." You're going to have to leave somebody you really trust run the club in L.A. Because the club in L.A. was having a little bit of a hard time because the comedy store was really pretty entrenched. And he and I went, ah, and the next day he called me up. He said, you know, I've been thinking about what you said, and I only have one question. I said, what? He said, how soon can you be here? <laughs> and I said, well, wait a minute. I don't, you know, it's not my club. I, I don't know anything about L.A. I don't know anybody in L.A. But I came to L.A., and it had worked out really well, and I met a lot of people out here, including, most importantly, Charlie Joffe, who at that time Rollins and Joffe, the managers, were... Who managed uh, Woody, Woody Allen, Allen and yeah, uh, Robert Klein. And David Letterman at the time. Robin Williams. Yes. Letterman, uh, Tony Bennett. They had handled Nichols and May, Mike Nichols and That's Elaine right. May. Um, you know, they, were, they, they, they handled Billy, Crystal. Um, so... So you I'm, see where this is going, folks. Again, it's about the relationships along the way. And uh, if you maintain yourself as a good man... Uh, you keep those relationships; they all come back to you. Well, I think if you just hang out and don't get paid in in you know bars of comedy clubs, <laughs> uh, it's a sure road to success. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, Bud, uh, as ex- Bud got divorced, his ex-wife moved back. At, at that time, I thought I'm 27 years old and I'm not really having a good time. This doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And Charlie Joffe said to me, uh, "You should be an agent because that's how you learn the business." And my agency is ICM, and they're getting their butts handed to them because William Morris is signing all the young comics. So I want you to go meet the guys at ICM. So I said, all right, you're Charlie Joffe. And, and, and Annie Hall had come out and won the Academy Award, and now Manhattan had come out. So Woody was, he was on the cover of Time magazine. He was, you know, Robin, who was a buddy of mine, had gone on to be the biggest star in America in Mork. So certainly this was, you know, somebody whose advice you were taking. And Jack Rollins, who was his partner, is the the godfather of all these managers and, you know, one of the smartest guys still around, amazingly so, and, and wish him well. Uh, so I went and I met the guys at ICM, and they said, okay, well, you got to come out to L.A. if you want to do that because that's where we need you, and that's where we're, you know, the TV mm-hmm. business is. Now, normally what happens uh, when somebody takes a meeting at an agency, anyone, they have to start – in the mailroom, but I would imagine you were in a situation where they didn't make you do that. You probably went right to a desk. I went, yeah. I mean, I became an agent, yeah, right was, away, which yeah. is very rare for yeah. somebody. You, uh, you can't imagine how rare that is because I don't even know. I don't even think I know five people who went from doing nothing, no managing, no agenting, nothing to, to becoming an agent. Uh, well, I think I think Charlie's endorsement had a lot to do with it. I think the fact that obviously they had a very specific. Uh, job in mind for me to sign these comics. So it was to sign the young comics. Yep. So so tell me, so you, you get in there, you come in, uh, you got your office, you're set up, you have your assistant. 
Tell me if you can remember one of the first calls you made to start new business. Uh, you know, well, one of the first calls I made. Well, at that time, um, there was a guy who I had known from the improv who was a young manager still in college. And he was coming down from Buffalo University to book acts out of the improv to, to go do, uh, uh, you know, work sh to, week to work weekend shows. He was and. Um, I wasn't a lot of help to him because I didn't really want him to book my best acts and take him out of the club <laughs> for the weekend. Um, uh, it turns out his name was Brad Gray. <laughs> and he had moved himself out to L.A. For those of you, Brad Gray uh, from the Brillstein Gray days. And when he was a young manager, he represented Gary Shandling. Again, the relationships keep coming here. And uh, uh, partnered up with probably one of the greatest managers of all time, who is no longer with us, Bernie Brillstein, and then became the uh, president of uh, Paramount Pictures. And I would say chairman of Paramount. Chairman Pictures, of, yeah. pa but he started as the president, or did he start as the chairman? You know, he's probably knowing Brad. He started as a chairman. <laughs> but I mean, Brad had a lot of great comics, and obviously had a great career, and and produced a lot of great TV shows. But at that point, he was a young manager, and I was looking for clients, and I signed a couple of guys that I knew from the improv, Joe Piscopo, Keenan Ivory Wayans, who worked the door for me. Joe worked the door for me. I picked Keenan. I, as at great uh, distress to Keenan's mom, I talked him into quitting college. He was going to Tuskegee, so he could only come during the summer. And I said, hey, if you're serious about this, get rid of the red pants and <laughs> you know, show up you know, seven days a week, which he did. And um, so I Brad had a, had, a, uh, had a comic named Bob Saget. Of course. Who needed an agent. And I wanted to work with Brad because I, I even back then felt this, this is a guy to hang out with. Good things are going to happen for him. And we could help each other. Uh, and then a very fortuitous thing for me happened, which is that Lorne Michaels left Saturday Night Live. And they were revamping the whole cast. This is in 1980. And so they wanted to, they were looking for a whole new, and everybody that I had or people that I knew seemed like likely candidates, especially since the person who they picked to uh, become the producer so was a woman named Jean Demanian, who was Woody Allen's producer. So uh, the NBC folks, the new Saturday Night Live folks, they were all auditioning you know, coast to coast looking not just for performers, but also for writers. And the nice thing about stand-up is that, you know, they're, they're dangerous in a lot of areas, uh, not just to themselves. They're, they can <laughs> be performers, you know, on stage. They can be performers in television, can be performers in films. They're writers. And certainly if you're putting together a sketch show, uh, you know, it was before really the great proliferation of the sketch clubs. Although Second City was around, there wasn't really the the whole sketch movement. There were a couple of small groups in New York that had, that had done it. So comics were a real viable uh, you know, place to go for casting. So I ended up, luckily for me, putting a couple of people on the first show. Which was Joe Piscopo Joe, and, and Gail Mathias. Gail Mathias. And the head writer named Mason Williams. Yeah, I And remember. another team called Hurwitz and Arnstein. And then, no matter how hard we tried, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard everybody tried, they couldn't, they wanted to cast, of course, the Garrett Morris replacement, which is the one, you know, non-white guy in the cast at that time, right? So we looked around, looked around, and Keenan, they liked Keenan a lot, but they wouldn't pull the trigger on Keenan. 
<clears throat> we just saw everybody that... Now, uh, I told the story on an earlier podcast that you probably know about who actually was hired for that role before the person who you're talking about uh, actually got the role. I, you it know, was a guy who was the greatest street performer of all time. Was it Marie? Oh, no, Charlie Washington. Barnett. Charlie Barnett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was hired, and he was fired when they found that he couldn't, he couldn't read, read the, the scripts. Yeah. And so then take take us to the next thing here. So Piscopo, who was one of my great buddies, uh, called me up, and you know this was I mean literally they were already in I don't know rehearsals, but early you know getting together, and and he said, hey, he said uh, they've cast this kid. He's 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 great. Um, he did, he never played the improv, so I don't think you know him. Uh, he's I don't know eighteen years old or whatever he was, uh, and I told him he should sign with uh, with ICM. He's coming out to L.A. You should pick him at the airport because N- NBC they, you know the NBC guys want to meet him. So I said, "What's his name?" I said, "His name is Eddie Murphy." I go, "Okay, I, you're right. I don't know him." Um, so his manager at the time was one of the guys who owned what became the third club in New York. So there was the Improv and Catch, and because they were doing a really good business, they opened up the comic, comic strip. strip. The and comic it was strip, Richie right? Tinkin Richie, and Richie Bob Tinkin and Bob Wax. So his managers. So I was now working as an agent, and I called up Bob, who I knew. We had worked trying to settle the, com- the comic strike together, the comedian strike you know, meeting strike out here in Los Angeles, and then the one in New York, which yes. never happened because we uh, we averted disaster there. But um, but uh, uh, Bob, I think it was said to me, you know, look, uh, this guy's going to be a movie star. We need somebody in the movie business, and 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 if you're gonna if you're gonna sign Eddie, we need you to bring in somebody an agent from the movie business. So there was a young woman who had just started there, uh, named Hilda Gottlieb. Who I said, well, she, to myself, was well, Hilda's a good buddy. She'll she'll kind of let me. If I had brought in a bigger agent, it wouldn't. So anyway, so Eddie came to the West Coast. I picked him up. I think I took him to the Palm Restaurant. It was his first time there. Then Very famous restaurant here in L.A. that's famous for caricatures all over the walls. Of yeah. The then dropped him off and, and at NBC. And obviously, you know, we watched him in that first season. And he did a bunch of stuff with Piscopo. And they worked really well together. And... Um, it was, uh, you know, there was there was certain magic there. In the meantime, I'm going out and sign another young guy. So you so you end up after the you, well, you normally you pick a guy up at the airport when you don't represent him. That's good enough for him to sign with you, right? Back then, <laughs> hopefully, I I, th- I think I have the chronology right. He might no. have signed before he came out, but I think I think I remember that he came out before he signed. But, but I mean, I think what's really amazing is that here you 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 get a job as a, a doorman at the Improv. You never did anything like that before. You succeed. They give you the managership. You succeed. You increase the business. You go out to your next gig, which is at ICM. They give you an office. You've, you have no clients. You have nothing. You have no, there's, no one, there's nobody in this town that is hired at an agency, at any agency, with nothing. You had nothing. You had no goods. All you had was a relationship. Shit, I'm glad I didn't interview with you. <laughs> <laughs> but you had this thing, and, and you proved to everybody that you could you could do it, and it was just amazing. You went in, you had nothing, and you just went for it. And look at what happened. You just signed all these people who are mega stars, and all of a sudden your stock at the company probably rose, and you probably were in bigger and better meetings, signing bigger and better people. And so why did you decide to sort of 
transition out of ICM after when you're so successful and you're Eddie going on to do all these movies like 48 Hours and so now you're in a situation where you just with stand-ups who are working in the club then you're in st- uh, stand-ups that are doing television shows now you're doing stand-up of people who are doing movies that are making hundreds of millions of dollars you're at the height of your game you're like the guy who has the eye and then you just say you know what this isn't really working for me anymore what happened well <clears throat> i mean one thing happened is that there are a lot of changes at ICM uh, in in the in 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 the upper management so that became a little bit of a different place but mostly and i think you know certainly you know this as well as anybody the talent representation business is really tough um, first of all the business is one where any job is going to end. You know, it's not like you work at the post office where it's 20 years and you retire. Whether you got a TV series or you got a movie or whether you got a, you know, uh, a week in Vegas or whatever it is, you know, the guy that you represent is going to be looking for, and I say guy, whether it's a woman or a man, is going to be looking for a job soon. And even if they like you, they don't have a whole lot of sympathy for you, a whole lot of loyalty for you if you don't have that next job either waiting or really soon. And, and then the other thing is you're always arguing with people about money. And no matter how much money you get your client, I don't remember too many, Jesus, this is great, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it, everybody always thinks they should be paid more money. It's one of the reasons why they have the guts to get on stage and do all this stuff, you know? Who was the first client you had at ICM that broke your heart? Well, you know what? That's, I mean, that, that I think is the other thing, which is, if you represent, and certainly as a manager, you know, which is a little more detailed work, although I function kind of like quasi, but you know, you only you know you have a handful of clients. But if you're an agent, you got to have a pretty big roster. So if a client doesn't get a job, they're certainly disappointed. I could have six clients in the same week not get jobs, and I would feel that disappointment because I'd get excited too, you know, for you know for their situation. So I, the the disappointment was really hard for me because I didn't have a chance to get down and depressed. I had to be up for them and I had to be on the phone going, all right, I'm going to find you the next job. And it, it wasn't a lot of fun. It, I learned a lot. Uh, so luckily for me, back to you know your, 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 your relationship analogy, when I had been at the Improv in New York and comics were kind of getting hot and TV executives were looking for them, there was a woman who ran primetime programming for ABC in New York named Bridget Potter. Of course. And she hired me as a new talent consultant for ABC, setting up showcases uh, for the L.A. executives for when they came in town to see talent for possible casting. And, uh, matter of fact, just sort of as, a, uh, as an aside, two of those executives were Marcy Carsey and Tom Werner, <laughs> and they went on to leave and become... Carsey Warner, who uh, basically produced Cosby and uh, Third Rock from the Sun, Roseanne and uh, Sybil. Grace Under Fire. And the list goes on yeah, and on and yeah, on. Yeah. So, uh, so Bridget Potter had left that uh, job and had gone to head up what was then called original programming at HBO in New York. Right. And she called me and she said, I got a job in New York, specials job, you want to come back? And by that time I was married, had a young daughter. I said, nah, I'm not really going to move back to New York right now. But then about a year or so later, she called me up and said, there's a job opening in L.A. Um, and 
you know, you have all these relationships with comics. And at that time, what HBO was really doing was comedy specials. The hour special. Yeah, and not a, and not a lot of, you know, I think they had just done the pilot for First and Ten when I got there yeah. with O.J. and Delta Burke. And uh, so I looked at this, my situation and I thought, I'm not really happy here. Am I going to make a move? And I thought, sure. And again, I was going to a situation where, relatively speaking, I was going to be the boss in L.A. Uh, my boss was going to be in New York. And I said to myself, you know, that worked pretty well for me when I was the boss in New York and my, and my partner boss was in L.A. So And you I, realized the pattern that happened earlier that worked for you and you repeated the pattern and it worked for you here. Yeah. So I went to HBO, joined HBO in 1985, um, stayed there 22 years. And just uh, just tell me, like, so you were doing specials. Tell me the first special that you actually authorized to go under your watch. Well, you know. Or some of the few. So I joined HBO in June 85. Uh, one of the first calls I got and one of the first visits I got was from uh, a buddy of mine named Bob Zmuda. And he... Uh, and I went to dinner at some Italian restaurant in Hollywood, and then we were walking around later, and he said, hey, I got this idea. You know, they had done, the musicians had done Live Aid. Yes. He said, we should do a comedy telethon to, uh, you know, help Africa, too, because the musicians are doing it. It'll be a great thing. We'll, you know, we'll, you know, we'll, you know between the two of us, we know everybody. It'll be great. Eyes Mood will produce it. You know, we'll, you know, whatever. So I said, well, that's kind of, sound, kind, of like, kind of interesting idea. Let me go talk about it at work. I went home and I mentioned it uh, to my wife. And she said, you know, I think people are sick of doing this for people outside the U.S. If you're going to do it, find a charity inside the U.S. So, of course, this became the, 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 the first big thing that I was really getting involved in. And then we realized... We had to pick a charity. We had to form an organization. It had to be. It had to get a tax exempt which, which status. Is, which is one of the reasons why, when you look around the network television horizon, you see very little networks aligning with charities because it's such a thing where there's so many conflicts of interest. Why aren't you doing this one when you can do that one? But back then, there probably wasn't as much craziness around. Well, that. also this was HBO, so on one hand. You know, we didn't have a lot of those restrictions. On the other hand, we weren't in every we weren't in every household, so our ability to raise money was not as great. But from a creative point of view, we were able to do the show without commercials. We were able to present the comics in a way that they, uh, you know, could perform their acts on stage. Um, and so, I joined '85, June '85, March '86. So, nine months later, we did the first comic relief. And so. When you're putting together with Bob the host situation, was it always a situation where you were like, excuse me, I have to have three people, these are the people I want, or was it a discussion? What were the com who were the comics in the mix, or was it always Billy, Robin, Whoopi, that's it? You know, there were a lot of comics in the mix, and there were, and there were names. And, and, you know, Billy had come off so. Billy was not as big a star as he later became. Robin was a really big star. And Whoopi was somebody that, that had just done an HBO special. Yeah, she did that, the one-person show and then the right, special. Her Broadway show. Yes. Right, that Mike Nichols directed. Yeah. 
So we felt we needed three because it was a big group. And, and we also needed people who were going to help us promote this thing because they were the, you know, the talent that were going to help us get interviews and going to allow us, you know, going to do the poster and, and, and everything. And so uh, they were all friends and or former clients. And they agreed to do it. And Whoopi certainly was extremely passionate about it. Robin and Billy, uh, you know, great people and, 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 and uh, interested in, in, in the cause, but also in the idea of doing a live comedy telethon. This was something new. And then we uh, got really lucky because Whoopi had shot a movie called Color Purple. And as we were promoting this, as we were putting this thing together, she got nominated for an Academy Award. And so she became a real magnet for the press and for attention, at which point, given it's Whoopi, she was just as happy to talk about comic relief as she was to talk about, you know, anything else. So it, it, it turned out to be a great combo. Uh, they had great chemistry on stage. Uh, and I remember the night that we got ready to do it. You know, live television is unlike anything else. I mean, live, live theater is great, but live television has the same... Feeling is live theater, you know, you've gotten in front of an audience, but you also realize you're going to be beamed up on a satellite to hopefully millions of people around the country, if not the world, depending on what the show is. And it was a real rush and something, of course, I'd never been involved with before. So uh, it, it was a crazy fun night. And when we, when we started, you know, we had the phone banks to get the donations. And when we realized that people were actually calling and pledging money, we just couldn't believe that we were that we were getting this done. So that was the first real thing. And it really put me on the map in the sense that I think it showed I could, I mean, at HBO, I could deliver the comics. I could conceive of an idea. You know, we executed it well. I worked with the whole team across HBO. And it, it, it gave me a real, a real leg up in terms of credibility on both sides of the table. And again, I, I don't mean to be a broken record, but the pattern that you have throughout up to this point is you go into something that you've never done before, you do the research, you figure out how to do it well, and you exceed the expectations of everybody watching you, and you blow people away for the first time. How many people do something for the first time? How many people are a baseball player, get up to the plate, they hit a grand slam their first? And every single point that you're in, you're hitting these home runs. I remember, you know, comic relief to me, I always remembered because of the incredible moments that you had that were just so, you just couldn't believe they were happening. And for me, one of the craziest moments, which I'll share with you, which might not have been one of the biggest stars, might not have been one of the biggest situations, but it was, it was a young kid who, who took a chance. He took a risk. He did something that was I'd never seen before in my life, and that was Bob Goldthwaite. Mm. And he went on with a bathtub. He went out, did his jokes in this, this, this Pocahontas-like outfit with fringes and looked like something out of like Captain John Smith and pretends like he's bombing. So he's got the biggest stage in the world, and he intentionally bombs for the first two minutes, and then says, "You know, like a singer, I'm I'm only I'm only good telling my jokes when I'm taking a shower. So could you bring out the shower, please?" And and Martin Olson, I believe, was the guy who brought out the bathtub and the curtain. He undresses, and he gets in the shower, 
and he turns it on. It's freezing. Maybe it's not freezing, but he acts out that it's freezing. I'm pretty sure it was freezing. <laughs> and he tells his routine in front of the world in a shower, and they wheel him out when it's all over. And to me, that was what comic relief was all about. It was like I like to talk about the holy shit moments, which are all through your career, but also the moments where you inspire performers, you inspire the world, but you also do something that's symbiotic where you start a charity and you, you, you contribute to people all over the world, which is a big part of your life, and you've been a part of so many charities. And I know your time is limited, so we don't have that much time left, so I'm just going to talk about... Uh, let's go into a few things that I think are your holy shit moments. So tell me about when you were at HBO and just tell me a, a few stories, maybe one quick moment or story. I'll mention a show and you tell me something about it that you remember that, that, that would blow our audience away or something that you remember that was like, holy shit, I can't believe this would happen. Uh, sex in the city. Uh, okay, well, this isn't necessarily a phenomenal Sex in the City story, but I remember being in London and the show was at the height of its uh, popularity, and uh, uh, you know, it was it was an all the the women in the show were icons for all different you know shapes and sizes and groups of women uh, around the country and around the world because the show was was distributed around the world. And we were just about to start production. I got a call from Carolyn Strauss, and she said, are you sitting down? I said, Carolyn yeah. Strauss was a top executive yeah, with you at HBO. Carolyn Strauss is the greatest Brilliant. executive. Um, and uh, she said, Sarah Jessica's pregnant. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what's the punchline? <laughs> and she goes, no, Sarah Jessica's pregnant. And I said, okay, well, this is, you know, she's like the fashion icon of the world. What are we going to do? And she said, well, we're going to shoot her in her with either carrying a lot of you know, baskets, <laughs> or we're going to shoot her sitting at a lot of tables, and uh, you know, in in the in the uh, in the in the spirit of the show must go on, you know, and certainly Sarah being a, the consummate professional and and a, and, a, and a real trooper, we made it through. But uh, I guess the other story I can say about Sex and the City is, you know, for me it 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 it, it really uh, um, was the show that I thought out of all the HBO shows in part had the greatest impact on the culture. May not have been the show that everybody talked about the most, but it was a show that I think spoke to a generation. And, 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 and it was the first time I realized that television could do that. You know, so uh, not, not, not a holy shit moment. Ask me something else, I'll come up with a better holy shit moment. Curb your enthusiasm. Holy shit. <laughs> Um, you know, I, you know, actually Larry, who of course was a friend and a, and a, and a former client and, uh, um, you know, he was, uh, uh, he had created Seinfeld and executive produced Seinfeld and become extremely successful, came in and said, uh, I want to do a special and I want to follow my, uh, you know, I want to go out and do stand up, and I want to follow the stand up, and I want to do like, you know, pretend meeting and, and at, at the then I said, "All right, that sounds okay." And and Larry doing something, you know, Larry was never the most successful stand-up. He could clear a room as a stand-up, but many, many many times. But he was an incredibly funny guy, and I used to keep putting him on stage, thinking, 
And he go, no, I'm not going to throw on the mic and I'm, 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 I'm you know, I'm going to do my act. And I, and, and I go, okay. And I keep trusting him. And then he'd go on stage and he'd get frustrated after, you know, a minute and he'd throw down the mic and he'd walk <laughs> off stage. So I thought, all right, this will be great. This is our chance. This is my chance with Larry to do the, uh, uh, you know, to do the, his stand up act. Cause he's going to, now we're going to put it on, on tape. He's going to have to do it. So he went around to a bunch of cities and we followed him around and we created the docu and he shot the stuff. And then he handed me the special. And I, I watched it and it was all the documentary stuff. The stand-up was maybe, I don't know, like seven minutes of stand-up out of the hour. And, he, and, he, and, and, he, and I said, what happened to stand-up? He goes, you know, I, I was watching because I just, didn't, I just didn't really like it. I didn't feel very good about it. I liked all this stuff way better. And I said, holy shit, he did it to me again. You know, it was like, it was like him throwing down the mic. He said, but, he said, you know what? I think there's a series in this. And it was funny because Carolyn Strauss had said the same thing to me like about 15 minutes before I had this phone call with him. And I said, you know, we were talking about that here. And, and I said... You know, we're not going to do the stand-up because no, no, just just the other part. So that's how Kirby enthusiasm came around. Got it. Entourage. You know, Entourage was an idea that started out sort of trying to find. Uh, it, it was based loosely on 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 Mark's experience as a rock star and a movie star, Mark Wahlberg. And the reason why I'm fascinated about Entourage, and and this is one thing again, if you're a performer uh, uh, listening or watching. If you watch the pilot of, of the show, okay, uh, you know, two minutes of the pilot, maybe, is the agent, uh-huh. Jeremy Piven, right? Maybe two minutes, right? He's at the, maybe, maybe he's got 30 seconds in the middle, another 30 Ari seconds. Gold, yes. And at the end, he just, you know, the phone wants to throw it out the window and whatever. Yet that's the guy takes home three Emmy Awards right. because yeah. what happens is again the little things become big things you got a guy who gets a chance and he's got a little bit and some most actors will be like oh fuck this you know they're not giving me anything they're giving me this little tiny thing I'm an actor I've, I've got lineage here I've got a whole family of actors that are giving me two minutes and with these other guys who are you know but he goes in he does it he makes his mark and then he becomes an unbelievably integral part of the of the show, and and you were a part of that. So tell me, like, so w- 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 it came together with Wahlberg, but what was something that happened that? Uh, well, I get, I guess, uh, the audition day because you know we <laughs> we tested a lot of people. The audition day was actually pretty funny. Um, the guys knew they wanted uh, Kevin Connolly, and Kevin went up and he was great, and we and we had him. And and so Mark was uh, Mark Wahlberg was partners with a guy named Steve Levinson who who also represented some of these guys. And then Kevin Dillon came up and, and gave a completely, what, what would have seemed like in isolation, over-the-top performance. But coming out of that face with that accent, it, it just blew us away, we were laughing hysterically. And then the role of Turtle was written actually for a guy named Dominic Lombardozzi, who was actually a friend of Mark's. Uh, but Dominic wasn't available because he was on a, sh- he was on a show called The Wire yep. for HBO. So, and uh, uh, although Dominic would have loved to have done both shows, there was no way to work that out. So they brought up a young guy, uh, kind of chunky guy, and he was young, and, and uh, he did the audition. And then, you know, everybody sort of leaves the room, and we were talking, and 
Steve Levinson said, you know, I, I, and this guy Jerry's a great guy. I like him. I go, yeah, I know. It's kind of funny. He was wearing like a big hockey jersey. I said, but he's not really that big a guy. You know, isn't this guy supposed to be a big guy? He says, well, that's why I told him to put on a hockey jersey. He said, but you know what happened when I called him, when I, when I asked him? I said, what happened? He said, well, I called him up. I said, you know, this guy needs to be a big guy. So, do you, you know, can, can you wear a hockey jersey? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and Jerry said, yeah, which one do you, you know, should I wear? And Steve said, well, which ones do you have? And Jerry goes, all of them. <laughs> and I just like I just remember thinking, all right, that's that's turtle, you know, the guy that's got all the hockey jerseys, right? But the hardest, so so we are right, okay. This is the guy. The hardest role to cast, and and they brought in an actor who was pretty good, but he was very much a Wahlberg type, but it just wasn't right. He was more of an action star, and he was older than the other guys. And I thought, okay, this isn't, this isn't right. But we knew, and we all talked amongst ourselves, that even though the role of Vince, because as you point out, Ari wasn't a big role, Vince, the movie star, he was a secondary role. It was really about the buddies. Yeah. And, but I, I knew that if you didn't believe that Vince was a movie star, then the, you wouldn't believe the show. Now, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't go along on, on the journey. So Steve Levinson said to me, hey, there's a guy on tape. Couldn't be out here. If, you know, I'd like to show you in your offices back before we had DVDs. We were watching things on tape. Uh, you know, uh, he's got a beard. He just finished doing a movie. Uh, he, he's just reading up against the white screen. He's a, more of a DiCaprio type than a Wahlberg type. So I said, all right, let's go down to my office because, <laughs> you know, we, we got you know, we, you know, we to cast this where we're shooting this thing. So we went and he put up, he put up the tape and he looked and standing there was this bearded guy uh, you know against a white wall but he had unbelievable presence he had these amazing eyes and i looked at these guys i go i believe it you know i, I mean he was reading the lines from the show i go I, I didn't look like the character at all that we had envisioned on the screen but you just believed that the audience was going to go oh okay that's our movie star and i think that was a really big part of why the show succeeded aside from the fact that everybody was great and and, and Ari, obviously, and uh, <laughs> Ari, and Jeremy obviously did an amazing job playing Ari. Uh, but I think if you didn't believe that Vince was a movie star, that show would not have worked as well as it did. I think you're right. So wrapping up here, uh, there's so many things that I want to talk about. Um, Can we talk about whether or not you valet? You uh, you pay for valet parking? <laughs> I will. Not? Do you I validate? Will, I will pay for your valet. Okay. You know, Bud Friedman told me this weird story where he said, you know... Don't ever pay for valet, <laughs> Bud probably told you. <laughs> That's why Bud's where he is today. He said this... I asked him something that he did that he, you know, he, all these things that he regretted or whatever. He said, you know, one time Jerry came in, Jerry Seinfeld came into the club and he was really kind of big and he came in with his mother and I said, you know, your mother's got to pay and he made his mother pay for the cover admission. He never, never forgot that. You know, one, you know, one thing about Bud Friedman and you and I were talking about a minute for a minute before we started here, let me tell you, I know a lot about comedy because of Bud Friedman. He was a nightclub owner. He was a tough ass guy sometimes he didn't always treat you know comedians like a teddy bear grandpa but this guy knew about comedy i would watch him tell you know laugh at the guys who were the truly the most talented whether the audience laughed or not didn't matter if bud thought you were funny the chances are you were funny so when you were getting the vaseline the banana in the head was he laughing in the back or no you know he liked it for whatever reason and you can call it whatever bud was always really 
good to me. He liked me. He gave us, picked us from auditions the first time. No one ever gets that. So I know. It's I only got great things to say about Bud Friedman. And uh, and as well, you should. So I've just a couple more things here. Band of Brothers. Okay, here you're a comedy guy. Yeah. And you're you know you're the chairman of the the network, and you green light a show that's a. $125 million. Maybe you were getting $10 million from the BBC. I can't really, I, I think something like that. But still, you know, it was like $10 million an episode for like 11 hours. Yep. Were people like looking at you like, what what the fuck are you doing here? Where you know we can we can do we can we can do a comedy special for two hundred fifty thousand dollars and fill the time. What do you? You know, by that time we were starting to get. We had done a big miniseries with Hanks, and now this was Hanks called from the Earth to the Moon, and now this was Hanks and Spielberg, and HBO was really starting to make a lot of money. And my boss at the time, Jeff Bukus, was now the chairman and CEO of Time Warner, uh, who was the CEO of HBO then. He was a big supporter in in, in what we were trying to do, and. Uh, you know, when Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg sit you down in a chair <laughs> and, you know, we, 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 we went into that meeting thinking, all right, we're, they're going to ask. We're not going to spend a penny over <laughs> eighty five million of wherever it was. They're going to tell us and they're going to ask for a hundred and we're going to say no. You know, this is over at Lantana, which is production offices over on Olympic Boulevard here in L.A. And you know, we went in and they sat us down and they told us what they were going to do and the whole story, blah, 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 this and that. And they had some scripts at the time. And they said, we can do the whole thing for one hundred twenty million dollars. <laughs> Jeff looked at me, I looked at him, Jeff looked at him and went, okay. <laughs> so, you know, it was just, those guys are pretty hard to say no to. And it turned out okay. Oh, it turned out more than okay. And normally, I would ask you uh, professionally uh, one of the biggest disappointments, but clearly when I think about The Sopranos, I think about... Probably, you know, arguably one of the greatest shows on television that combined comedy and drama in single camera television. And when I think of The Sopranos, you're probably going to look at me and say, this is weird you saying this, but the thing about All in the Family that was a multicam show was that there were those moments occasionally once every 10 shows where there was those dr there were those dramatic moments where you 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 wanted to cry and the hair on the back of your neck stood up and you were like I I can't believe I'm seeing what I'm seeing and then there was a little bit of comedy with it and I always felt that in a way Tony Soprano was a sort of a hybrid version of Archie Bunker in a way that he was living in his own world but he was brought to television in a single camera way where there could be such dramatic moments but such incredible voyeuristic comedy moments and it really struck me that way that uh, this character was was to me was going to was going to change the face of television which it did and when when you were casting that show, was was he always there, and was he always the guy, or was he somebody who was Jimmy? Just, yeah, Jimmy yeah. He was one of three guys we tested. One was a guy named Michael Rispoli, who ended up playing Jackie April in the show, and actually was just on Stars and uh, for two seasons in uh, Magic City. Yes. Uh, and then Stevie Van Zant came in, and and. Uh, I, I, he was a serious contender in the sense that he tested for the network, but David Chase had another uh, role in mind for him that wasn't in the uh, first script of the show. But once we finished the reading and, and you, 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 you know, we talked about it, you realized that 
in order again in order for the show to feel honest and real you need a guy in there that you would believe you know would be this guy so you get this guy who's you know a character actor and done some things you get him the role you know doesn't pay a lot of money back then and then things take off for the show and the guy hires the big lawyer has the agents his agents were. yeah and i was asking for more money and they ask you for millions and millions of dollars which you back the truck up you give him the money but then there's those stories about how you know he's still in his trailer sometimes uh you know maybe not coming out or doing whatever and there's legendary uh stories of your uh just you had this relationship with him where he he had so much respect for you, but occasionally you'd have to get on the phone and and, yeah. and bring him down to earth and get him where he was supposed to go. And really, it was a relationship that I think was also instrumental in him being who he was on the show and, and, and how he became and how he was respected. But you saw a lot of things that the public didn't see, and you handled those things behind closed doors. And you not always, not always. <laughs> some some things were reported on. And you knew, but you knew that he was a brilliant talent, and you knew the show uh, was a statement for society. And that's another thing that people don't realize about your training ground of being in the back of the room and with comics and hanging out with comics and how to navigate with comics and their different personality. He wasn't a comedian, but he had that kind of personality that was a true artist personality. And your training all those years through all that thing gave you the knowledge of how to deal with that and it became one of the greatest shows ever and and I think one of the biggest disappointments disappointments obviously you know is his loss so um, finally we'll end this here and I'll ask you what's your proudest moment professionally my proudest moment professionally uh wow you know what i never think of it that way because uh i try and keep my ego in my back pocket unless i really need it to beat the shit out of somebody with um i would have to say that there are very few things that um compete with being backstage in that first comic relief and hearing the stage manager in the side go and five four three two one, you know, and they sort of fade out. And I got a tingle just now as I told you that. So I'll leave it with that. Cool. In your role at Stars, we already know in your previous role how you changed the face of television. Let our audience know what they can expect with Stars and how your role there in a unique and visionary way is going to sort of change the next phase of television you know television's changed a lot since i started at hbo we had a great playbook it wasn't a secret formula a lot of people have emulated that i think people would a lot of people call this the golden age of drama on television and certainly it seems to be that way in terms of the number of shows that are out there so uh it's it's a very competitive landscape and stars being a premium channel needs to be worth paying for above and beyond the stack that people pay for anywhere where they get a lot of the basic tier channels 
So we're looking to put on some things that are distinctive, that are going to work with the audience. Um, but un unlike HBO, which was protected in a very large media company, Stars is now a standalone independent public company. So we're also busy running a business, trying to create long-term shareholder value. So for me, it's a new adventure, being a public company CEO and looking and making decisions on shows that are creative, but also certain, you know, looking at them saying, okay, you got to make a business case for yourself in order to stay in the air. You know, keeping the wire on for five years when no one watched it and it got two Emmy Awards for writing and never won one. And then, you know, years later, you have people declaring it the greatest show on television. Those days are over. You know, this is, this is a time when the competitive nature of, of technology in, in the media landscape is, is allowing for certain opportunities, but they better not cost, the, you know, a lot of money. And if things are costing money, then they have to make a business case for themselves. And I think stars, we're running it like a business, and, and, and we want it to have a distinct creative voice. But those two things have to merge together. And for me, it feels like all the things I've gone through in the past have led me to this point where, for the first time, I might actually have to act like a grown-up. Great. And advice for two-part question, last question. Advice that you'd have for a young executive trying to break into this business and move through the ranks like you have. And then finally, advice for a young comedian who's starting out, who's trying to break through the clutter and get to the point where somebody like you would say, you know what, we're doing our next hour special right. with you. So advice for an executive, I would say, you know, certainly training. Being an agent, I think, being a manager is the best training. You learn how the business works. You understand how to work with talent. You understand how to work with executives. You understand how you have to go to work every day and make something happen or you've had a bad day. Uh, and I think that that being ingrained in you is, is good. Also, never take chances. You know, the hardest climb on a ladder is straight up. That's why they built stairways at angles. So I think, you know, always be willing to, t to go laterally if, if, it, if it's going to give you a different experience. Don't always think that, you know, you've got to be the boss at the place where you work because those idiots don't know what they're doing. Um, and I would say with comedians, you know, f at least for my money, it was always, I want to hear somebody talk about themselves. First person comedy is the toughest, but it's, 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 it's to me the purest form of the art. And uh, also, if, if, if you're looking to establish yourself as a real performer and, and be able to do other things, I think that first person comedy where you're creating a persona, even if it's just a variation of yourself, you know, Jerry Seinfeld's a variation of Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld, you know, but there, there's, there's, that, there's that point of view about yourself and in relationship to life that I think is invaluable for other people coming and going, you know, I want to be in business with this guy because he's amazing. So instead of being, you know, the fifth lead on some show that you didn't have anything to do with, people are coming out and wanting to write stuff around you and your point of view. You know, Martin, Everybody Loves Raymond, you know, all these all these shows where comics are at the center started because guys had a point of view in their acts. Absolutely. Well, Chris Albrecht, this has been an incredible honor. It's been uh, so inspirational. Barry, it's good to see you, and I forgive you for Dave Chappelle all those years ago. <laughs> we didn't even talk about that story. <laughs> that's, but, that's for drinks. But that'll, that'll be for drinks. <laughs> all uh, right. But listen, thank you so much. And listen, uh, you've been listening to The Industry Standard with me. Uh, Barry Katz and as always if you uh, like the show tell all your friends and if you don't like the show tell all your friends they say it's 
face of glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley. A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.